1: Uh, Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Erin Seck about the trouble with passion, how searching for fulfillment at work fosters inequality. Uh, So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Dave.
1: Um, This is not only a really great book, but uh, I think it's a really important book because it speaks directly to where we are almost like as a kind of set of of societies in terms of our relationship with work, but also in terms of how um, social inequalities, which um, many people argue are increasing, how they function and how they're sort of underpinned. And at the heart of the book is, and it's in the title, isn't it, this idea about passion being really important. And I suppose the place to start to discuss the book is this idea about the passion principle and I'm really interested in what that idea is, how you sort of came to uh, theorize it and, and kind of why it's it's such an important idea.
0: Absolutely. It is one of those cultural ideas that really has been hiding in plain sight for decades and has uh, elided scholarly attention uh, to my great surprise when I started to study this. So the passion principle is the general idea that the best way for us to make career decisions is to follow our passion, meaning to find fulfillment and meaning in our work, even if that means sacrificing things like job stability and a decent salary and dealing with contingent work. It's the notion that in order for us to think about having a fulfilling life, we need to find fulfillment in our jobs.
1: You use that kind of core all the best kind of social science insights are ones where you know they're really sort of deceptively simple but obviously they, they take you know an incredible amount of time to to kind of think through but but you, you use that core idea about you know work should be fulfilling it should be you know something you're doing for for love for passion and link that I think directly to a range of uh, different uh, kind of workplace inequalities and, and you do this in, in two ways and one of the ways that um, I was particularly interested in, would you try and say that this idea of, you know, the kind of the need for for passion, joy and love in your work is linked to frameworks, uh, ideologies, or, or what you call kind of cultural schemas um, that people use to navigate the world. And I'm really interested in what these cultural schemas are and how they um, are related to explaining the passion principle.
0: So cultural schemas are, are sort of shared cognitive maps that we have about the world. And we can't navigate our social world without having theories about it, without having ways of understanding it. And so we rely on many different cultural schemas or these shared cultural models to make our way through our day-to-day lives and to make sense of the world that we face. And these cultural schemas are really important, particularly when we're thinking about uh, complex and often vague decision-making points in our life. When we're asking ourselves, what should I do? How should I live? We lean on these cultural ideas to help us understand what our options are and what the pros and cons of those options might be if we were to pursue them. But what's so interesting is um, these cultural schemas are not just cognitive. They're not just sort of like frameworks we have in our minds for, for seeing and interpreting the world, but they're also deeply emotional and deeply moral. So when we think about Uh, taking one path that is uh, aligned with one particular cultural schema, like the passion principle, there's a sense of emotion, there's a sense of morality that's often attached to that. So when I talk about the, the, the passion principle as a cultural schema, what I mean is it's this thing that exists in the social world that, people look to as a guiding principle, as a way of thinking about what their options might be for career decision making in one of the most um, powerful consequential decisions that we make in our lives, uh, i.e. the decisions we make around our career paths.
1: The the, the other thing in, in terms of this um, development of the passion principle is, is the, the group that you're, you're interested in. And I, I'm Quite interesting, and we're going to talk about um, th- these um, individuals or this, this set of, of workers in, in a lot of detail, obviously, but you, you kind of talk through how these cultural schemas and the cultural scheme of the Passion Principle plays out w- within a particular set of workers. So these are people who are going to college, who are making um, you know educational, but also, as a result, career decisions, and then uh, workers who have been to to college as well, and, and I'm quite interested in why you chose um, th- those individuals or, or that that community to um, to test the passion principle ideas, or at least to kind of empirically uh, demonstrate them.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So when we think about the labor market currently, and the kinds of opportunities that people have available to them to uh, take into account various commitments and expectations and desires about what their career path might hold. It's really only the college educated in the current labor market that even have the option for considering various opportunities, various perspectives on what kind of work they want and what sort of relationship they want to have with work. Increasingly, Those without a college degree are really blocked from paths that will lead to um, a decent salary, that will lead to some kind of job stability. They're more likely to be in places where there's a lot of contingent work. They might be um, uh, minimum wage or uh, sitting right along the poverty line. And so to think about career decision making Outside the, coll- the college-educated workforce, really requires a taking into account a whole host of other factors that are uh, much more constraining in the choices that non-college-educated uh, persons make. But I argue that um, it's that even though the passion principle is a space that is is a, a consideration for those with college degree, that doesn't mean it's not consequential for those without a college degree. And so what I find is that in the labor force overall, regardless of education level, people really want work that they find fulfilling and meaningful. Um, And people who are um, without a college degree may often also be pressured to um, perform passion for their work, to perform their uh, blue collar, their service work as though they have passion. So one of the best examples of this is a placard I saw um, in front of a Starbucks that said, um, uh, we have passion for serving you coffee. And that sense of like, it's not just that the barista has to be nice to the customer, but they have to perform a sense of passion for coffee making means that even though we're looking at the idea of the passion principle as being most salient among the college educated. It has flow down consequences for um, virtually every uh, space in the labor market because of the kinds of expectations we might have for um, workers and their performance of work.
1: I mean, you've already... um illustrated the idea of the kind of stratification of of the passion principle there you've talked about the difference between i guess kind of um particular kinds of service uh work and particular um, qualifications that that people need uh, to do this kind of kind of work and, and actually like later on in the book you talk about a couple of examples from um you know kind of going into I guess we call it the food industry where there's a very different view of, of passion and it very much is not working in Starbucks. You know, it's a very different part of, of food service. And that sense of kind of stratification almost kind of animates, um, the, the story the book is, is trying to tell. And, and I guess one way of, of thinking about this is, um, if you could give some examples about how the passion principle played out for the people you were interviewing, and crucially, actually, how they talked about things like money and to be really kind of, you know, sort of blunt about it, how people who had, you know, lots of privileges, who were affluent, had a very kind of, you know, different view about the passion principle. Or at least the passion principle enabled them because of their resources to do very different things to their less privileged counterparts.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, in particular, when I conducted interviews with college students, um, I conducted them when they were in college and then I followed them up, uh, followed up with them um, when they were um, uh, two to five years out of college to sort of see what was what they were doing in the labor market. What I found was really striking. So um, when students were in college, there was relatively little variation in attachment to the idea of passion seeking by socioeconomic class. So um, almost regardless of the kinds of resources that students had available to them, they saw pursuing passion, most of them saw pursuing passion as the ideal way to think about choosing a major and the kinds of careers they would have down the line. But there was such a striking differential after they graduated in terms of who was able to launch this passion seeking into stable, decently paid employment that was aligned with their passion. And I found really striking socioeconomic differences there. And so students who graduated, who were from wealthy families, had what I called springboards and safety nets available to them. So passion seeking in general often required um, a fair amount of, uh, of time uh, to be able to suss out what job aligned with one's passion to find those jobs and to apply for them and get them. Sometimes that took months, sometimes even years for uh, graduates to be able to identify to to land in a position that was aligned with their passion. And often it also required downplaying financial concerns um, to put passion above it. So for the most wealthy students, even sort of uh, upper middle class students, they had safety nets in terms of financial support from family often to help them pay their rent, to buy groceries. as they looked for their job, but also springboards like connections that their parents might have in particular industries or the ability to teach them how to navigate getting a job and interviewing in the um, professional labor force that those who were from lower middle class and working class families just didn't have the same access to. And so when students went about seeking their passion with these differential levels of springboards and safety nets you really clearly see the kinds of implications so here's a couple of examples so um, one student um, is from a wealthy family went to stanford and um, graduated and really wasn't sure what her passion might be, but really wanted a job that she was passionate about and talked about how she didn't want to accept a job she wasn't passionate about because it might foreclose opportunities that she actually was passionate about. And so she kind of worked odd jobs and volunteered for a while for about three years before she finally figured out what her path was, all the time bankrolled by uh, the support from her family, both financially as well as um, uh, as as extra financially in terms of encouraging her to uh, take this long view on finding her passion. This is really in stark contrast to um, another Stanford student um, that graduated in a very similar major and had a really clear path to medical school, had this really prestigious pre-med fellowship, was in that fellowship for two weeks and decided she didn't want to be a doctor. She didn't want to go into medicine, quit that program, and ended up... um, uh, uh, finding a an unpaid internship at a video creation company uh, that she presumed would, after the internship, lead to a paid long-term job. Um, but because she didn't have the connections to really understand what that meant, she ended up uh, in contract work with that particular company, and she is very precariously situated financially. She works sort of as a day laborer essentially for this um, content creation company has um, thousands and thousands of dollars in student loans and doesn't really know what her financial future will look like. Um, But when I talked to her, she actually doesn't really regret her decision to leave the medical school path because she feels like she's uh, aligned with her passion. But at the same time, she feels really uncertain, really unconfident about what her, um, her economic situation will be down the line.
1: Is any of this new? So, in some ways, like that um, story of, of inequality, um, you, you've, you've outlined there, and the different, um, I guess, kind of payoffs to being uh, passionate about your, your choice of work, and indeed having the ability to choose um, your work and, and, you know, choose it by according to what what you really love and what you really want to do. Is that something that that kind of has just emerged in, in recent years? Is it something that is, you know, kind of connected to whether we'd call it like late, neoliberal, you know, postmodern, whatever sort of term we'd attach to capitalism? Or does it have a longer history?
0: Mm hmm. The- Outcomes, the differential outcomes by class, is certainly not new. Uh, this has been the differential in terms of access to social networks and um, financial support after college is is something that has existed for um, more than half a century. What's what is fairly new here is the emphasis on the sacrifice for that passion seeking, this idea that that we should prioritize finding fulfillment and passion in our work. Uh, And this is certainly tied to um, a number of broader economic and cultural processes as you hinted at. Neoliberalism is certainly one of those. The idea that we are solely responsible for our own lives and uh, our own opportunity structures uh, is very nicely interwoven with the idea of passion-seeking, because passion-seeking is all about you identify the thing that you love, and if you if you put in the time, if you work hard enough, you will succeed in that passion. It presumes a kind of uh, meritocratic operation of the labor market that social scientists have known for a century or more it doesn't actually uh, uh, exist uh, in the context of the labor market as people often think it does. Um, and so, the sense is that uh, we should encourage everyone, particularly young adults who are going to college, to pursue their passion and deal with the money issues later. Deal with the financial concerns later. That the that that stability and money will will follow as long as you invest uh, the, the the time and effort into your passion. This also aligns um, really curiously with. The increasing in precarity of the labor market since the 1970s. So we might ama- So so precarity uh, change. Obviously, things like globalization, deregulation um, in the United States, but certainly uh, in uh, in other parts uh, of the Western world had this really <laughs> strong um, uh, decline in regulation, de-uni- deunionization, uh, globalization that led to jobs being more precarious than they were in decades past. So maybe our parents or our grandparents' generations, if they got a college degree and went into the white-collar labor force, they could sort of expect to enter a company and work in that company for sort of as long as they wanted to, as long as they were doing their job. There was an expectation that the company would take care of you more so than there is any any kind of expectation along those lines today. But we've seen such a drastic shift in that college-educated or non-college-educated, there's little expectation that we have any sense of stability or employment security with the organizations we come to work for. And we might have we might think that there is two potential responses to that. One response would be everyone is finding the most secure, most stable employment they can possibly find. They get the job. They look at what is needed, where the openings are. They major in that field, and that's how they align their goals. But that's not what the pattern is. What I'm seeing is that instead people are saying, well, the labor force is precarious anyway. I'm not guaranteed a job. I'm not guaranteed job stability. So I might as well find work that I love and find fulfilling. And it's this, this emphasis on finding meaning and fulfillment um, alongside the sort of neoliberal idea that anyone can succeed as long as they put in the work and are passionate enough that creates this really perfect storm of the potential for the passion principle to reproduce uh, inequality.
1: It, it'd be good actually too, and you, you've given a, a really nice um, example of, of, of two individuals uh, already, but it'd be nice to really kind of pin down um, how things like risks and choices uh, are so unevenly distributed, both uh, at the kind of middle chapters of the book I was really struck by on the one hand, who takes risks how they understand risks what you know is even considered to be a kind of a, a risk is is really you know sort of differentiated by socioeconomic uh, status class you know whatever sort of term you would use for that and then at the same time how and and i was really struck by a particular word actually i think it's it's in the third or fourth chapter how Passion ends up kind of choice washing, as you describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the inequalities that we see in in working lives. So I wonder if you've got. Maybe a couple more examples to kind of tease out those things around risk and around choice washing.
0: Mm -hmm. So one of the most striking examples um, that that lingers with me is uh, somebody I call Thomas in the book. And Thomas um, graduated from Montana State University with a music education degree. Very talented musician, and is from the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota area originally. And he's first generation. Um, his, his family is a farming family. Um, so he struck out on his own uh, to go to college and get this degree. And from the very beginning, he'd, be pro- he'd been promised by the college, by his program, by his instructors, by his, his friends in the program, that if he put in the work and he got the degree... And then he put in the work when he left college, he would be able to be successful in whatever he chose to do with his music degree. And Thomas moved back to Minnesota and started a music lessons business. And so this is something that you really have to kind of like scrape up potential uh, uh, clients until you get a de- decent client base. And then you're able to kind of sustain yourself with that client base. And Thomas explained that he was doing quite well. He had a really nice, strong client base and it was growing um, easily, but he couldn't get on top of his student loan payments fast enough. He had over $60,000 in student loan debt to his name, and he couldn't manage paying his expenses as well as a student loan debt as he was growing his business and ended up having to leave music lessons business entirely and went to work at um, a United Postal Service distribution warehouse making... an hour. And I talked to Thomas about his experience and he was so disheartened by the The expectation he was led to have about his opportunities within within his college environment, among his peers, and in the sort of general cultural narrative about what it means to to have a career and pursue a passion. And he said, The system kind of ate me up and spit me out. And in a lot of ways, that's sort of what happened to him. He's back work, he's working in a blue collar job um, with enormous amounts of student loan debt far outside of his passion. And we might imagine that if Thomas had had, um, family support that his parents would be able to, would have been able to pay for his, um, his uh, his education. He wouldn't be carrying around this immense amount of student loan debt and would have been very easily able to continue his music lessons business. Maybe his he would have had parents that had some kind of connection in a professional space that would have allowed him access to more clients or um, clients that would pay uh, a higher um, premium on his lessons, etc. cetera. Um, but because of the kinds of constraints that he had going into following his passion, um, the outcome of uh, his journey is quite strikingly different than what it might have been for somebody who had even just a little bit more safety nets and springboards to their name. And this really ties into the idea of choice washing. And choice washing is this sense that that we utilize a particular schema to explain away patterns of sociodemographic inequality in the United States. So let's take gender inequality, for example. So if I'm looking at gender inequality as a sociologist, I understand that there's structural and cultural processes that lead to the reproduction of that inequality that is based in uh, deep-seated inequities, processes of oppression, et cetera. Someone who utilizes a lens, a lens that choice washes that inequality through the passion principle might look at, for example, income inequality by gender or gender segregation and say, well, that's just a matter of people choosing differently paying fields, that women just happen to be interested and passionate about fields that don't pay as much as the fields that men tend to be interested in and passionate about. But of course, that belies the entire structure of differential valuation in terms of um, uh, how society values and rewards and pays uh, different occupations based upon whether they're male-dominated or female-dominated. But it also takes the idea that we can explain these deep-seated patterns of inequity in society, gender segregation and occupations, racial segregation and occupations, class, and, class segregation and occupations as the outcome of individual passion-seeking. And if we use that explanation, nothing needs to be done because it is already based in choice, a neoliberal sense of personal responsibility and choice, then there's no policy solution that needs to be addressed, no social change or so- social movements that need to be kicked off.
1: In some ways, um, this isn't a, a diss of contemporary sociology, but a lot of contemporary sociology would stop at that point, actually, and kind of say, well, look, we've presented this framework as to how you know individuals... Uh, justifying decisions and how you know on a kind of social level these uh, collections of uh, maybe you know mistaken individual decisions un- underpin these unequal outcomes but crucially you pay off the book by saying, well actually there's there's another set of actors here and that's employers mm-hmm. um, and, and I was I was really you know, delighted is the wrong word because it's you know quite a depressing set of, <laughs> of discussions but yeah I, I was really pleased to see that you, you tried to bring in actually this isn't just you know a, a kind of an individual worker's concern but employers are, are really important here and actually they uh, are, are very you know exploitative uh, you know certainly they they have an, a, a really kind of central role in underpinning and uh, replicating the passion principle and I'm fascinated to hear about what you know exactly it is that employers are kind of getting from um, having these passionate employees.
0: One of the things I kept hearing in the interviews is that people were willing to uh, sacrifice a whole lot for work that they are passionate about. That might mean, as I said, salary and job security, but it also could mean um, a sense of having a long-term trajectory in that organization, et cetera. And so it really raised the question of what, How are employers benefiting from passion? And it's not a far stretch to imagine that if people are passionate about their work, they're likely putting in more hours or putting in more effort. They might be engaging in work uh, in time that might be otherwise set aside for leisure, time, and activities. And so I wonder to what extent not only did employers benefit from the passion of their employers, but might expect it and might exploit it. And so what I found through a series of uh, experiments is that um, in potential employers who are looking at um, different application materials um, are not only more interested in Workers that express passion for the job, as compared to other kinds of uh, motivation for work, like liking the organization or um, liking the salary or the lo- uh, location of the organization, and the the reason why, in part, that the passion uh, passion applicants were preferred over applicants who expressed other reasons for being interested in it in the work was not because. They would just be sort of more fun to work with, or would be more interesting colleagues. But because the 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 potential employ employers believed that the passionate uh, workers applicants would. Um, work harder for the organization, would invest more of their time and effort, and would be more willing to put in an increased amount of responsibility without an increase in pay. And so this helped explain why there was this preference for these passionate applicants. And so that suggests to us that employers... Mm -hmm don't just um, get more out of these passionate workers, but they use that as a way to assess and as a criteria for hiring people explicitly understanding that they will get more work, more effort from those persons. And you can see this all over the place in terms of job ads. People advertise for passionate workers all the time. And that's in part because of the kind of labor that you get from passionate employees. And the thing that concerns me as a sociologist, as someone who is concerned about labor market inequities, is the kind of exploitation That comes out of this, the kind of exploitation of people's passion that this suggests. And we don't often think about exploitation in a space where that work is freely given, right? We think about exploitation as something that's coercive, but the broader sense of exploitation is actually at the kind of system level or societal level, meaning that there's a group of people who are Less valued, less rewarded for the work that they are engaging in than others, and this is certainly the case for people who are passionate about their work. And um, so, I talk about uh, at the end of the book the kinds of considerations that workers should take into account about how they're showing up at work and the way that that their passion might be exploited.
1: I mean, that that was going to be my uh, concluding question, actually. Like, what what should we do about it? Both. As workers, you know, what what kind of advice do you have for in individuals? And and then, you know, maybe kind of more generally and at a social level, how do we get to grips with uh, the passion principle? You know, how do we sort of intervene to make it clear that whilst in some ways being passionate about your work is something that we should all be, you know, um, kind of supportive of, it actually has a whole range of, of different um, quite Unequal payoffs, both in the labour market and in society more generally.
0: Yeah, you're right that we want to think about this both at the individual level and also at the more sort of structural societal level. So, at the individual level, I think we all have to remind ourselves that the labour market was not constructed to be a place for us to to find ourselves for self fulfillment. It was it was constructed as uh, as a process of of capitalist production and profit-making. And so it is not the place that we should necessarily be situating our sense of self and our sense of identity. And so I talk about in the book um, what I call diversifying our meaning-making portfolio. Uh, And by that, I mean seeking out, especially for those of us who are interested and enjoy our work, to find other places that we can find a sense of identity and fulfillment that's less risky than... Uh, situating our sense of self and our sense of identity in the labor market and in our employment. And beyond that, we want to think about how we uh, talk to decision makers, to colleagues, to the young people in our lives about their own career decision making. So because the passion principle is such a morally laden and emotionally laden cultural schema, we want to be careful that we don't repeat that sense of moral obligation or uh, emotional attachment to the idea of passion seeking for those who are thinking about what to do next in their careers. One of the things that's so striking is the question, who do you want to be when you grow up, is expected to be answered with an occupation and not a other form of sense of self, like I want to be a good friend or um, be a good parent or be a community leader. It's it's I'm going to be this particular um, uh, person in the labor market. And so really making sure that we are uh, expanding the narrative that we uh, that we use when we're talking about uh, uh, career decision making, especially with young people, is really important. But beyond that, we want to think about um the collective opportunities for change um, that 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 this requires. So, by pushing back on the passion principle in our own lives, that will go to some extent to reclaiming uh, the potential for exploitation and demanding our worth to our to our employers and things. But the reason that passion seeking is so risky for many is because of the limited social safety nets we have, especially in the United States, but in other places as well, for those who face precarity and insecurity in their employment. And so if we can work to make work less precarious, um, undermine the uh, intense expectation for overwork and work devotion, especially among white-collar workers, and really think about how we can improve uh, work, uh, work experiences, work quality, not just for the white-collar workforce, but for everyone. That can undermine the uh, riskiness and the negative outcomes of passion-seeking.
1: This is an incredibly kind of rich um, area to to be working on, I think, uh, both in terms of, you know, contemporary uh, challenges of of work and labour markets, but also, as as you've noted, you know, the kind of discovery and and mapping of the cultural schemas that allow inequalities to to, to be replicated and and to, to carry on. And. I could see how there would be, you know, maybe certainly lots of papers, you know, maybe a couple more books in this area. But equally, after this kind of quite, um, I think, important and comprehensive contribution, um, have you lost your passion for the passion principle? (laughs) What what sort of thing are you thinking about working on next? (laughs)
0: Um, that's that's such a funny question. Um, so I am, uh, working on planning out my next book. Um, it will be, uh, roughly on what I'm calling inequality tales. So the cultural narratives that the public uses to understand and explain inequality. So this ties a little bit to what I was talking about with choice washing, but the general sense that, um, that the public responds to, uh, Votes along and supports or doesn't support particular policy solutions about processes of inequality and disadvantage, in part by the way that they come to explain how those uh, disadvantages exist in the first place. And so I want to do a project that looks at how people explain inequality across gender and race and LGBTQ status and class as more of a kind of cultural scaffold for um, how people think about inequality. Thank you.